everybody else, y'all can turn to Psalm 42. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge, and we are glad that you're with us online or in person. Next week, we'll jump into our next book study. We're going to do Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. We may have an empty room (laughs) next week. I think it'll be better than it sounds. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be better than it sounds. But this week, I want to look at Psalm 42 and 43. And the question I want you asking, this may be a, a bit topical. I just want you asking this question. It's repeated three times in these two psalms. These psalms are actually one. It, there's a, a break between 42 and 43. There probably shouldn't be. As we read it, you'll see how yeah, that's, that's really all the same thing. So I'm just going to refer to it as Psalm 42. Three times in Psalm 42, this question, why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? So that's the question I want you kind of uh, percolating on as we look at this psalm this morning. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And we're going to use the questions in this psalm to help guide us through and see if we can figure out what the Lord would want to say to us this morning. So starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So that's our question. Why so downcast? Downcast is exactly what it sounds like. It means to be cast down. It's a word that would be used to describe a a mourner at a funeral who would sit down and then lay down, go face down on the ground. It's as low as you can get to be downcast, disturbed. That's actually a really loud word. It's a a deep groan or a moaning. So this guy's really, really upset. He's asking himself, like, why why am I acting like I'm at a funeral? Who died? And that's what we want to know. What's going on? He gives three reasons for why his soul is downcast, why his soul is so disturbed. And the first is the most fundamental. When can I go and meet with God? So the picture, this guy is a Levite. 
the sons of Korah. Korah was a family, and they had responsibility at the temple. They would be like Bo and Kaylee. They were worship leaders. And for some reason, he's been, uh, he's been exiled. He, he can't get to the temple. The assumption is that he's exiled. We don't know. But he can't get to the temple. At this time in history, God lives in one place. He lives in this one building, the temple in Jerusalem in Israel. And this guy wants to be there with God, and, and, and he can't get there. He's, he's currently living in this mountain range. They're called the Anti-Lebanon Mountains in Syria. Mount Hermon is the, the highest mountain in that range. It's 120 miles from Jerusalem. He's 120 miles from the temple, and you can hear him. He's as a deer pants for water, and that's, a, that's another loud word. The, the idea is how a deer would be who's, who's living in drought conditions, how desperate that deer would be for water. That's how desperate this guy is to meet with God, literally to see God face to face. And at this time in history, the only place to meet with God is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's 120 miles away, and for whatever reason, he can't get there. And it's tearing him up. And he's thinking back to these festivals three times a year, uh, the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish families would, would assemble in Jerusalem to celebrate these great festivals that we read about in the Old Testament. And he's, he's thinking back and probably even thinking about his role in leading worship maybe in one of those festivals when his turn came up. And he can't get there. And it's killing him. And then you add to that this place where he's living, this Gentile country, that he's being taunted, he's being mocked. People are saying, where's your God? This God that you claim to serve, this God that you say is so great, where is he? Does he not care about you? Or does he care about you and he's too weak to do anything? Here you are, 120 miles from his presence, and he doesn't seem to care a whole lot about you. He's being mocked and taunted in this place where he's living. And then you add to that, I think there's on some level, he kind of agrees with some of what these guys are saying to him, some of the taunts. He says, why, why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten about me? How long do I have to go about mourning and oppressed? I think he's feeling abandoned. He's feeling forsaken. He's feeling forgotten. That passage, he's the, the, the Jordan River, the headwaters are in these mountains, and there's a waterfall. I wish I could remember exactly what it's called. B-A-N-I-A-S, I think, is the name of the waterfall. Um, and, and that's the, the headwaters of the Jordan, and he's near that place. And I think as he's kind of sitting there, and he sees this waterfall, and he's thinking, I kind of feel that way. When we hear that, sometimes we think of this kind of romantic, oh, God's love kind of being poured out on us. And God absolutely pours his love out on us. But that's not the picture here in this psalm. We tried this. We'll see if it works. This is just a 20, this is 29 seconds of this waterfall. We'll see if we can show it. And you can kind of get a feel for what it might be like for him as he's sitting there and experiencing it. Do we have it? Let's see. You turn it up. where he is. You couldn't hear it super great, but it's loud. And you could imagine that very beginning where you saw that water falling into the pool. That's how he's feeling. He's feeling crushed. He feels like he's about to drown. And honestly, he kind of thinks it's God's fault. They're your waves and they're your breakers that are crashing over me. 
That's how he's feeling. He's feeling like I'm sitting here and I'm getting pounded by all of this water. And I'm about to drown in all of these waves. And you could do something about it. And you haven't yet. Three reasons why this guy's soul is downcast. He can't get to the, he can't get to the temple. He desperately wants to be in the presence of God and he can't. The place where he's living, he's being taunted. People are saying, why are you trusting in this God any longer? And then honestly, experientially, he's kind of going, I'm feeling forgotten and I'm feeling abandoned and I'm feeling forsaken as well. I feel like I'm getting pounded by this waterfall. I'm feeling like I'm about to drown and God's not doing anything about it. And his response in the midst of that to me is both encouraging and challenging. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my God and my Savior. Immediately, he says, even though this is how I'm feeling, and this is what I'm experiencing, and this is my reality 120 miles from the temple, I'm going to continue to hope in God. That enigmatic phrase, deep calls to deep, what I think he's saying is, the deep need in me is crying out for the deep resources that are available only in God. I think it's a cry from his heart. Your love, he, God directs his love, and I would say in parentheses what's implied is towards me. I think that's what he's saying. Your song is with me at night. He pictures himself drowning, and then he says, God is my rock, the firm foundation on which I can stand. He cries out, God, vindicate me. All these guys that are Mocking me, that means they're ultimately mocking you. Vindicate me. Lead me back to your temple. Because my soul is downcast, therefore I will remember. There's an action there. He's looking back at who God has been and what God has done in the past, and that fuels him. He has a, he has a confidence in a better future. That's what hope is because of who God has been and what God has done in the past. He looks backward in order to look forward. His hope, it's not this kind of ephemeral, kind of uh, uh, aspirational, squishy feeling. It's solid and it's grounded on who, he know, who he's known God to be in his past, who God has revealed himself to be in the history of Israel. And that gives him hope moving forward. And so my question for you this morning, I want to look at this in two different ways. One is through the lens of separation, and one is through the lens of kind of this mental and emotional, I don't know the guy's in a crisis, but this mental and emotional state of the psalmist. So separation, and then his mental and emotional, we'll just call it his state. Crisis may be too strong of a word. So he's separated from God. So under the terms of the old covenant, this guy's right. God lives in the temple, and the temple is in Jerusalem, and he's not there. We know theologically God is omnipresent. There's no place that he's not. And, and God has said, but during this time, I'm going to be particularly present in the temple. That's where, if you want to meet me, that's where you need to go. You need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And so this guy, again, 120 miles away, and for whatever reason, he can't get there. He's cut off from the presence of God. He can't meet God face to face. He's separated from God. For us, I think the tragedy for, for many of us, we live as if we're still living under the old covenant. With the new covenant, there's a new, new terms of relationship. At Jesus' death, remember that line when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it's finished, he breathes his laughs, and then we read that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. 
What does that mean? It's the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God lives. And that curtain has been torn, or the veil, your Bible may say, has been torn, which signals access. Every one of us has complete and unfettered access to the Father. It's no longer that God just lives in one building, in one city, and has made himself available to one ethnic group of people. It's no longer one guy, the high priest, who can approach God one day a year, the day of atonement. And even then, it's fear and trembling. Tie some bells around your ankle in case you die in this room. Because we can't come in and get you. we got to pull you out when the bells stop ringing. That's no longer where we live. We live in this place where we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, it's not this mountain or that mountain where we worship God any longer. We worship him in spirit and truth. That is, we can access him. Anybody can access him anytime, any place. That cliche, familiarity, uh, breeds contempt. I don't know that it does that, but I think it does breed complacency for us. And we can take for granted the access that we have to the Father. I think if this guy who wrote this psalm could beat us, he would say, guys, do you realize how good you have it? Do you realize how good you have it? The only place where I can meet with God is for me to somehow take this 120-mile trek to get to Jerusalem and to get to the temple. You guys can access him directly anytime from any place. Do you realize how good you have it? And again, the tragedy is for many of us, we just don't. This guy was separated. That was his reality. It's not our reality. It doesn't have to be our reality. But we choose to settle for it so often. We choose to live separated from God. I mentioned last week I had several weeks off. And again, thank you all for making that possible for me. And uh, one of the things I was thinking, I, I got up every morning, I would walk on the beach. And that was kind of where I prayed and spent time with the Lord. And uh, I, I turned 45 in February, but I don't, re- I don't think I realized that I turned 45 until a couple of weeks ago. And I, I started thinking, like, I'm over halfway done. I mean, percent, like, by all probabilities, I'm on the backside. I'm not going to live to be 90. And so I started thinking about that and just kind of my life. And over the past several years, I have been thinking, not in a morbid way, but really thinking about what is et- about eternity and and forever, and what does that look like? And John 17, 3 has been a verse that's really been kind of swirling around in my heart for several years now, where Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God. And I think maybe in some part of my mind, I'd always thought of eternal life as, this, as paradise, which is kind of a, that's a, a Muslim belief. There's this paradise, and we're going to get to enjoy all of these pleasures when we die. And I think eternal life is Garden of Eden type stuff. But the prize is Jesus. It's being in unhindered access to him. It's unmediated access to him. It's, it's a depth of relationship and a level of intimacy that most of us, we can't fathom. The closest thing we have on this earth is the relationship between a husband and a wife. That's how it's described in the New Testament. It's the best picture that we get. And I started thinking about that and thinking, like, is that really what I want? Do I want that forever? Do I want that level of intimacy with God forever? If that is the prize, is that what I want? And I I was convicted. I started thinking, you know what? I have as much of God as I want right now. 
Like if I'm honest, I have as much as I want. I have enough to get to heaven and maybe to help me through a few difficulties uh, when I can't figure it out on my own. That's not the picture Jesus paints of eternal life with God. And so the, the struggle point for me began several years ago of saying, if that's where I'm headed, if that's what eternal life is, am I on the right bus? Not in terms of abandoning my faith, but really saying, God, is the thing that you're offering, which is yourself, is that the thing that I most desire? Or am I relating to you because of the benefits that you can give to me? Whether that's the forgiveness of my sins, eternal life, help in a crisis, for me, help doing my job. Am I relating to you based on a deep desire just to be with you? And again, I was thinking about that some while I was gone. As you know, For all of us, every day is a day closer to death. Again, that's not morbid. That's just reality. And for us, death is not the end. It's just the doorway into the life that we were always created to live. But I started thinking about that. I don't know why 45 felt different than 44, but for some reason it feels different to me. And I've been thinking about that and wondering for us, do I pant for God the way a deer in a drought pants for water? Nope. Not often. Occasionally when I'm desperate. What would it look like for me? What would it look like for you to desire God at that level? It's not to make you feel guilty. It's just a question of if, if the end for all of us is knowing the Father and knowing the Son in intimate, deep, ongoing relationship. That is the prize. What does it look like for us to say, that's the thing that I want more than anything else? That's the thing that I want more than any benefits associated. It's just Him and to be with him. A couple of things for you to think about. Desire and discipline. We've talked about this before. They fuel each other. You need them both. They complement each other, I should say. If you have desire, you don't have discipline, that's just kind of an aspirational life. These are the things I want, but you never really make any steps. If you have discipline without desire, it's a legalistic life. You're following the rules. You're checking the boxes, but there's no heart behind it. If you have both desire fueling discipline, discipline directing desire, then you actually have growth. And I want to encourage you maybe to think about that. If for every one of us, if the reality is we have as much of God as we want, that's how much you have because he said, if you seek me, you'll find me. He's made himself abundantly available. He said, boldly approach me. Come on. I've torn the veil. I've made the way. You can have as much of me as you want. So for every one of us, how much of him we have is how much of him we want. So what would it look like for us to begin to want him more? Just to begin to ask that question. Something I began to pray several years ago. God, increase my hunger for you. I can't stir it up. I used to think I had to do that on my own. It was my responsibility. If I didn't love God enough or want God enough, there was something deficient within me, and there is something deficient within me. But the solution is not for me to try to stir up a deeper level of hunger. It's to say, God... Will you do that within me? Will you increase my hunger for you? I want to be able to say with integrity, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. I want to be able to say with integrity, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I want to be able to say that from the depth of my heart. I want to be able to say you're the pearl of great price. Whatever it costs to be with you, I'm in.
I would encourage you to begin to pray that prayer. If you want more of God than you currently have. Or maybe here's the thing, if you don't want more of God than you currently have, then maybe pray the prayer. Ask him to increase your desire. Recognize where the, the bus that you're on, the, the place where it's headed, is that the prize for you? Is that enough for you? Ask him the question. The second thing I would say is, and I began to try to do this in halting steps several years ago, was begin to shape my life around seeking him first. I'm nowhere near there. Don't hear me say that at all. That's the discipline part. Desire, God, increase my hunger for you. Discipline, beginning to shape my life around seeking you first. I don't want to get into too many specifics. We don't have time, but I would encourage you to begin maybe hitting both of those things. Recognizing it's going to look different at different stages of your life. It looks different if you're an empty nester than if you're newlyweds than if you're single than if you have young kids and if you're with me where your kids are some of them are leaving the house and the rest of them are kind of can they can feed themselves and take a shower and those you have a little more time what does it look like to begin to say I'm going to wrap my life around seeking you first the desire and the discipline that go hand in hand don't live separated I think if this guy could say anything to us he would say, don't take what you have for granted. Don't take that for granted. You can interact, you can meet him face to face, anytime, anywhere. Why in the world would you choose to live distant? Second thing, for some of you this morning, your reality is your soul is downcast and disturbed. That's your experience. You feel like you're under that waterfall. You're getting beat up by the water kind of cascading over you. You feel like you're about to drown in the waves. For us, kind of where we live, a lot of that's fueled by anxiety and fear. COVID has just made it worse. We were an anxious people beforehand, and COVID has just increased it. I saw somewhere 45%, I think, of adults in the United States have experienced anxiety since March with the onset of COVID. Again, it's not COVID-specific, but that certainly hasn't helped. I'm wondering today how many of you would say, that's me. I feel like I'm getting beat up by this waterfall. I feel like I'm drowning. Honestly, I know that God could fix it. I'm just not sure why he hadn't. I don't know why he hadn't done anything about it yet. And I would encourage you, if that's you, to take heart, maybe take some instruction from Psalm 42, what would it look like for you rather than being driven by your emotions to allow your emotions to kind of serve as indicator lights? Here's what's going on. We need to be asking the question I would think pretty regularly. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? For some of you, the question you need to ask is, why are you angry, O my soul? Why are you so fired up? Why are you depressed, oh my soul? Why is it hard for you to get moving in the morning? Allow those emotions to be an indicator of what's going on in your heart. And rather than trying to deal with them on your own, bring them to the Lord. Ask the question before the Lord. Your soul is the essence of who you are before God. Distinct from yourself, who you are independent of God. 
ask yourself the question, or ask the Lord the question, God, I'm feeling this way. What is, what's going on? Why do I feel that? Why am I so angry? Why am I so anxious? I know all of the right things here in my brain. So why do I feel this way? And rather than beating yourself up, allow that to be an entryway, an entry point to invite God in and say, this is how I'm feeling and this is why I think I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling anxious because I thought my kids were going to go back to school and now they're not and i got to figure out how to teach a first grader how to read and teach an eighth grader how to do algebra and i got to work. How am I supposed to? I don't know how to do that. I need help. I need help, God, because I thought this was just going to be a blip and it's not and I don't know what's going to happen with my business in six weeks and i got 20 people who are looking at me and who are counting on me. And so I'm anxious. What, what is it? Invite him into that. And then I would say, like the psalmist, if you can make a commitment to say, in, in the midst of a downcast and disturbed soul, in the midst of an angry or depressed soul, I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to look back at who he's been to me in the past. I'm going to read the Bible and see how, who he's revealed himself to be in the past. And I'm going to allow that to fuel my confidence in a better future. That's what hope is. I'm going to put my hope in him. Not in my ability to figure it out. Not in who's going to win the election in November. Not in my, uh, not in my, my safety net that I've created. Not in some uh, county official making a different decision about whether or not we can send our kids to school. None of those things. I'm going to put my hope in you. I'm going to put my hope in you. If you can, I would encourage you to try to find out what helps you get perspective. I think that's super helpful. When I start getting kind of bogged down in the dailiness of life, I read a book about someone who's dead. And it helps me. It reminds me. Generally, all those guys had it worse than us. And so it helps put my life in perspective. I read a biography, and that may not work for you. I'm a reader. That helps me. I can give you some if you want them. What helps bring perspective for you? This guy commits to worship. That's a great thing to help bring our circumstances into a better perspective, a better sense of God and our problems, the bigness of God, the enormity of him, and the, then the relative insignificance of our problems. Some of you, your verbal processors, and one of the things that's been really difficult about COVID is you've lost, you got a lot of words stored up that you haven't been able to share. And so you're not necessarily moving past go. It's all just swirling up here. You need to find an outlet, somebody you can talk to and process with. Again, for me, I'm more of an internal processor, so kind of reading and being quiet kind of helps me. Worship helps everybody. You may need to find somebody you can talk with. If you're married, it, maybe your spouse, that may be kind of, they may be on overload right now. It may be great to have an, someone else, an outside perspective. Somebody who can help provide that Again, that perspective for you. I think that can help. As we make a commitment to put our hope in the Lord, I think perspective is a gift that he can give to us. I want to close with this. I used to think, and maybe I still fall into this trap, I use this terminology. When I think about being with God, sometimes the image, and for a long time, the image in my mind was like going to a gas station. And I would fill up the tank, whether that's on a Sunday morning or 
daily devotions or a retreat or a camp. That's what I'm doing. I'm filling up the tank. And I just want to see how far I can go. That was kind of the idea is I fill up the tank and then I go. And so for me, my car, I have an old car. I have, my car is old. It's, night, it's a 1997 Land Cruiser. It gets like seven miles to a gallon. It gets a little more than that. So for me, I have to fill up a lot just because my car's not super efficient. Some of you, you got hybrids and all those new cars, and you can go for weeks without filling up. And sometimes we can kind of take on that same mentality in our relationship with the Lord. I fill up, and then I just go. And then when I feel myself running dry, I, just get, I fill up again. I go to church, or I pop in a worship playlist, or I, I read the Bible, or whatever it is. And I've been thinking more and more this idea of abiding and maybe a better metaphor and a better picture for us than filling up a tank is breathing. I can hold my breath for about 30 seconds and that's it. I can drive a whole lot longer than I can hold my breath. And I'm wondering if our relationship with the Lord needs to feel in a little bit more like that. A little bit less like filling up a tank and seeing how going for 200 or 300 or 400 miles and more like I can hold my breath for 30 seconds and I got to breathe again. That feels a little bit more like abiding to me. And so as we're thinking about kind of just as you're approaching, if you'll close your eyes, if you can just step back and ask yourself a couple of questions. Ask your soul this. Oh, my soul, why are you, and then fill in the blank, downcast? Are you laid out, disturbed? Are you moaning and groaning, angry, anxious? What about numb? Ask your soul, why are you that way? I know many of you, you know all the right things, and you love Jesus. So why do we choose to live separated? Why do we choose to live 120 miles away? We don't have to. Why do we want to see how far we can go on one tank of gas instead of living in the reality of breathing in and breathing out recognizing our need for and dependence upon God is it's that essential it's the vitality of breathing not filling up a gas tank. So as you take stock of your soul this morning, I want to give you an invitation. You may want to turn around and kneel at your chair and let that become an altar. And I would say just right there at that place, bring those things before the Lord. Ask Him, again, your soul, it's who you are before God. So when you're saying, why are you downcast, oh, my soul, you're asking God to give input. What's going on with me? 
What do these feelings indicate about what's happening in my heart, about what I believe about you? Invite him into all of that. Make a commitment if you can, if you're willing. God, I want to put my hope in you. I have no idea what that looks like. But I want to put my hope in you. Would you give me perspective? For many of us, the things we need to be asking and meditating on. This idea of desire and discipline. As a deer pants for water, so I want my soul to long for you, God. And maybe what you need to be praying is, God, increase my hunger. Don't take that as guilt and condemnation, but as an invitation. Ask God to do that, to increase your hunger for him, to increase your thirst for him. Ask God to make him the most important thing in your life. Say, God, I I want to want you more than I want anything else. If eternal life is knowing you, I want that to be the prize for me, the greatest treasure. I'm thankful for all the benefits. But even if all of those benefits were stripped away, I'd be over the moon just to be in relationship with you. And God, would you now begin to show me, and you can just pray this as well, what does it look like for me to begin to shape my life around you as my deepest desire, as my first priority? You see my life, I, got, I have to go to work, I, I have these things. God's not asking you to spend 18 hours a day in prayer. Just begin to ask him those questions and again recognize that those things play off of each other, the desire and the discipline. Bo's going to sing. You don't, maybe it would be better if you didn't sing. You can just sit in your seat or again, maybe you want to make your chair an altar. We're also going to open up this front here where you can come and kneel. And if you kneel, that's a signal to, to me that you want someone to put their hand on your shoulder and that'll be me and I'll wear a mask and we won't talk. Um, I'll just put a hand on your shoulder and pray quietly for you. So if you come forward and kneel here at the stage, that's an indication that you're fine with that level of interaction. Otherwise, just kneel at your chair, and then Bo will dismiss us. Holy Spirit, move among us. Something like a message like this can really make us feel weighed down and guilty, and I don't think that's your intention at all. God, I think you're, you're wanting to invite us. There's so much noise, and there's kind of a fog that we're living in right now. And I think you just want to clear that away and say, here's what's possible. Here's what I've made available. And God, we want to take full advantage of that. And God, I want to pray for any who would say, my soul is downcast and disturbed. Would you minister to them this morning?